Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gish. You're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Tonight, we have uh, Mr. Wyatt Houston Day from Swan Galleries on the line. Mr. Houston Day... Hi, Leslie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, I'm I'm honored as usual to have you on my show. So let's get right into it. Tell us why you are on the show tonight. I'm sorry to say again, I'm having a little tough time hearing. Uh, I said, make the announcement as to why you want to uh, come on the show. What announcement is it that you have to make? Oh, well, um, I'd like to talk about the upcoming, it'll be my 20th sale of African-American history and uh, material at Swan Auction Galleries. That's coming up in March of 16, but I am putting it together now, and uh, if I didn't start this early, we'd, we'd never have one. Um, and I'll just talk, talk to people about that and about uh, collecting African-American material and the, and the need to collect African-American material, the historical material especially. Um, so that's, that's it. That's pretty much my uh, passion and uh, my, my job, as it were. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us who uh, you described the typical collector. I'm sorry. What's the that? Collector. Describe the collectors. A what, collector? What is... Well, there's this. Um, there's all kind of collectors. There are people who collect things that they can show. Um, people who collect uh, things they can hang on the wall and so forth. And then there are people who collect more. Um, how can I say? Just uh, hardcore historical material. Um, and then there are book collectors, and I, I make the distinction between all three because sometimes you get people who do all of it, but uh, I'd say most of the time people who collect books are fanatical about that's what they collect, and they keep themselves pretty much under control. I started out really collecting uh, books and uh, kind of fine-tuned that um, through the years, and I, I do collect African tribal art and uh, and art by African American artists. But I started out as a book collector. I have an enormous library. There are 2,500 volumes in my library now. Okay. And aren't you a personal friend and an associate 
of Mr. Henry Louis Gates. You call him affectionately Skip. Say again. You re- I'm sorry. Really sorry. It's I don't know why you can't hear me. Okay, let's try again. Aren't you a friend of Henry Louis's? Henry Louis Gates. You call I, him yes, I consider. Skip. Yeah, I consider Skip Henry Louis Gates my friend. He's uh, he's done a great deal to uh, get to make people aware of their history and uh, to involve them in their history, especially with the. Uh, there's all the uh, people looking back for their ancestors. And there's, by the way, not just from Skip, from Henry Louis Gates, but there are a lot of resources now that, that were not available 20 years or so ago, uh, like the slave registry and, and so forth. And I think uh, I mean, Skip is a special, special person because he does uh, he, he wears several hats. He's, of course, professor. At the at Harvard's Du Bois Center, um, but he also is involved in the making of a great many uh, TV specials uh, on Black history and uh, and so forth. So actually, beyond asking me if he's my buddy, um, did you have something more specific to ask about about oh, Henry Louis Gates? No, no, we we're just going through your background and your connection with uh, Black. Um, memorabilia artifacts, and I know you're connected to the Schomburg, and we've learned recently that Maya Angelou, she gave a lot of, of her um, materials to the Schomburg, but yes, your gallery sense. is connected to Maya. Could you go into that? Well, actually, it, that's that's something very, very different. Um, the Maya, Dr. Angelou's estate, that is, um, her nephews and, and the, the, you know, the, the family uh, have established the foundation. It's a charitable foundation for it, for the purpose of education. And uh, Maya collected uh, art by African-American artists, and she had amassed quite a bit of it. And um, when she passed, uh, that material, of course, went to her family, and their family put that art into a special sale at Swan. We have two departments, by the way, that are dedicated to African-American, the African-American community, if you will. One of them is what we call African-American fine art, and that department handles just that. Uh, Artists like uh, Romar Bearden, uh, Norman Lewis, and and John Biggers, and so forth. The other department I handle, I should say the fine art department is handled by a gentleman by the name of Nigel Freeman. And he does a very, very good job of it as well, because he doesn't just describe a painting by 27 by 15 inches or something like that. He gives you a bit of history about the artist and so forth. So um, that's something for people who are interested. Uh, that's It's a very good resource. Uh, mm-hmm. I handle just about everything else, um, historical material, photography, um, uh, and so forth. So, And that means like nearly nearly four centuries worth of material from the 15th, 1500s through the present modern period. <clears throat> so um, Now, let's talk about your last sale, last year's sale. What were some of the highlights from your sale last year? 
congratulations on your 20th anniversary. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, There were several very, very interesting things in the last sale. We had um, a Koran that was, it's a handwritten manuscript, we call that, a manuscript Koran from Timbuktu in Mali. And it was written in the uh, 1700s, and uh, it it was proof. It's it's too bad that it was not available to abolitionists in the 19th century and 18th century, because it proved that Africa did have a culture, a written culture. And this was an argument that the pro-slavery people made all the time: is that, well, they said they're not human; they don't they don't have a culture. Well, and they did have a culture. The Timbuktu had uh, several big universities, and I mean real universities, where students from all over uh, came to study, and there were people constantly copying the Quran and copying. Uh, astrology works and scientific works and so forth um, so that they could be spread out so people could learn from them. So Africa did have a real written culture and we had an example of that last year in the, or I should say this year, it was in March of this year. Um, It was a Quran, uh, I believe there were about 300 pages to it, or 300 leaves, don't take me uh, exactly on that, and um, it did very well. It sold uh, in the uh, five figures, and we were very pleased with it. Um, I'm going to have another uh, work from the same library in, uh, in Timbuktu. It's being consigned to me by the original family member from the original uh, library, uh, this has come down unbroken. Uh, this is a pure provenance, we, said, we like to say. It's a provenance that comes from its origin. Uh, so we're going to have another, another work. This time it will be a work on theology, and it will be a discussion, um, a written discussion, uh, by a Muslim writer on Christianity and Judaism, and uh, but not in any kind of a, uh, in a, a, what can I say, combative way. It's simply a comparative religion, as you might get a course in college on comparative religion. So we're very happy about having that. Um, I have also for the sale a Banneker Almanac. Now, for those of you who do know, it's, uh, Benjamin Banneker um, was an, uh, an astronomer, astrologer, surveyor, and uh, writer, and a farmer, and he was a next-door neighbor to the surveyor that laid out the grid of Washington, D.C., and in fact, Benjamin Banneker aided him in doing just that and laying out the uh, grid. Um, he also wrote several almanacs, and the almanacs, just like today's farmer's almanac, kind of uh, going by the phases of the moon and so forth, um, tell farmers what's the best time to plant and what's the best time to sow and so forth. And uh, Benjamin Banneker's almanacs are very, very, very rare. We had one a couple of years ago, and it sold for $42,000. And we we hope this one does as well. It's in beautiful condition, 1792. 
um, and uh, pardon me, maybe 1796. Um, that's another another uh, star, I'd say. And uh, we have a, a lot of rare pamphlet material and uh, books. Um, so trying to think of uh, other things. Uh, last year, that this I keep saying last year it was really in March of this year. Um, in the March of '16, we will have uh, some very good early photography as well. Um, I'm taking that in now and writing it up. I just cataloged today something very, very interesting. It's a, a document, um, a complex document from upstate New York from 1730. Um, and it seems that a, a black man was accused of, and he did actually do this crime, of burned down somebody's barn. And, uh, and for that, he, they were burning him at the stake. It's a particularly horrific but real document, and it involves a lot of early Dutch names. New York, at one point, by the way, around 1800, has had as many or perhaps a few more slaves than South North Carolina. And a lot of people are not aware of the fact of how many slaves New York State had, and a lot of them were on these upstate plantations that were from old Dutch families. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about the. Um, I guess he was a revolter, uh, the, the African American who um, burnt down the barn. He was uh, he was a slave of a captain. I'm still doing research on this because I I started to write it up, but it's not done. Um, he was a slave of someone called. Um, Captain Albert Pauling, and now there is an upstate town called Pauling, and the magistrates in in remember in 1730 this was still a British colony, so the way the law and trials and so forth were handled was like the British courts. And it wasn't exactly like uh, like ours. Uh, there there were six magistrates, and those magistrates. Acted like a uh, like the kind of hearing you'd have before persons even indicted or accused, and so um, this man whose name uh, was um, Jack. Uh, this paper, by the way, is written when it happened. It wasn't written like afterwards, uh, remembering what happened. It was written the day that it, that this all happened. And it goes, there are three big pages, they're big, what we call folio leaves, which are about 14, 18 inches high. And they go into detail, he, the, Jack himself says how he tried a couple of times to burn this guy's barn down. And unfortunately, I've been trying to research this. Unfortunately, we don't know why he did it. I mean, obviously he had a good reason or he wouldn't have done something like that. And I suspect maybe he was he badly he, treated. Right. He, hmm? maybe, he, he no longer wanted to be enslaved. Maybe that I'm could sorry. have been a reason. Maybe he didn't oh, want to no, be a slave. Of course. No, of course he didn't. <laughs> and not, no slave wanted to be a slave. But not every slave decided to kill his master or burn his, burn his barn down. And I'm saying what I was trying to, to find out 
was what was the straw that broke the camel's back? I mean, because this this was a recorded case. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have the documents. So I'm hoping I can find something more out in New York State uh, historical documents in their archives that maybe we can find out whether whether this guy Pauling was a a monster or not. (laughs) All right, Wyatt. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you because if I don't, I'll forget my question. Um, it was it was common for enslaved black people or Africans to burn down uh, buildings, and I just posted something on Facebook um, in reference to that they had they started building their homes um, with bricks because it was very common for Africans to burn up their wooden homes and their wooden barns. To the extent that the insurance companies started to uh, reject covering southern, I think all of South Carolina, they, they just automatically said no because there's too many arsons and you have too many slave revolts. So that was very common for African Americans. And, you know, we still have hints of that in our bloodline when you look at Ferguson and all the other cities that have been burnt down in recent riots. So can you talk mm-hmm. about any paperwork or artifacts you have as it relates to um, insurance companies and policies and things that they had to do and changes they had to make because of the resistance? I I don't have any for this sale, but I've handled plenty of documentary uh, material that, uh, that discussed uh, the insurance companies that insured slave ships and they insured slavers and slave owners and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. And as as things heated up, as you had incidents like Denmark Vesey's uprising or uh, Nat Turner's uprising and, and others, um, the insurance companies, of course, adjusted uh, to this as they perceived a growing threat um, right. to property. So, yes, naturally. Um, and um, we've had in the past had insurance policies on ships, um, I have not, I, and I've had insurance policies on the slave, but I've, I haven't had any incident like this where somebody actually burned down uh, a, a barn. Mm-hmm. And we know that from the Horsmanden, uh, the, the New York uprising, uh, 1740, that uh, the the main thing that they did was burn down buildings. Uh, right. So. Okay, now you mentioned magistrate, um, a magistrate earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I hear that that word, I think about John Riker of Rikers Island. Um, mm-hmm. Is named after he was a magistrate, and he was part of the um, fugitive slave uh, circumventing the fugitive slave law and the liberty liberty laws until um, the law was changed in 1850, where it was very common to get paid, uh, to get kickbacks. So right. Uh, could you talk about fugitive. John Riker and you know what he what is what he's famous for? Well, I mean, tell you the truth, I'm not fam- uh, familiar with any more details than what you've just mm-hmm. already said. Uh, All right. There are so many. Uh, mm-hmm. New York names that are associated that Rikers is another Dutch name. Um, mm-hmm. There are so many uh, New York names that are associated with these early um, 
what they call freeholders. These are people who generally owned land and lots of it. And uh, magistrate is kind of a legal term, but they're basically the, the upper crust, the people who had land and money. Um, so oh, okay. they all kind of are complicit in, you know, if you, you're looking at uh, the holding of slaves and and so forth. Well, and so many people assume that the 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 slave the the slave dealers were Southerners. The mm-hmm. some of the the earliest and most busy slave dealers were in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, really, um, the uh, so if you come across. If you come across any of John Riker's documents, um, you know, let us know here on the Gist of Freedom because we like to talk about who he is and the name of the prison because he uh, received kickbacks for enslaving free-born Africans, mainly children, um, uh, who were accused and kidnapped of, for being a slave, and then they were sent off. Really, I'll, I'll definitely keep. I'll definitely keep my eyes uh, open for something like that. I, uh, I, it, it's something. It sounds like it really should be looked into further. Yes, yes. Uh, what else um, are you excited about? And let's talk about what do you want our listeners to bring in to you? You have an impending or a tentative date. Are you working on scheduling this this road show, this free approval road show? Let me let me ask um, mm-hmm. uh, that if anybody has something they'd like to uh, like me to either identify for them or a praise for them. Um, I mean, I, I I will try to find time to do it. You can call me, and uh, Leslie will will figure out how to do that. And um, I can see you at the gallery in New York, um, and I'd be happy to, to, to you know, look at material. I'm, I am seeking material all the time for this sale, and it doesn't have to be from 1730 or whatever. Uh, I am very interested in the radical movements uh, here, uh, like Marcus Garvey, like the uh, UNIA. Um, and uh, the Muslim movement before uh, the uh, Nation of Islam uh, drew Ali and uh, so forth. So I, I'm interested in modern stuff as well as early material. Who is so, Drew Ali? Uh, Drew Ali was a, a Muslim uh, leader, and uh, actually uh, the Nation of Islam grew out of that movement, that is to say that uh, uh, the, uh, I'm having a old age moment here with names, um, that uh, they kind of merged at a certain point. But the, the movement, there were Muslims here, I should say, all the way back in the, in the times of plantations. It, it's crazy to assume, by the way, that, uh, that slaves were Christians. They were either Muslims or they were what people call animists, which means that they didn't worship animals. They were called animists, and they worshipped ancestors. And, uh, and usually they, they could do both, to uh, worship the ancestors and, and Islam. And there were many, many places here 
in the 19th century, some huge plantations off of the Carolinas where there were hundreds of of slaves that were Muslims, and their overseer in one instance uh, was the imam. Uh, And this movement carried on into the 20th century and in a very you know different way but the islam was always present in one form or another so i'm well, interested how did it make it i'm just I'm, I'm trying to learn here how did it shift from drew ali and animus to um, a white man to master farad well you know, how did ma- that happen master are you master who did you say Farrakhan? No, Farad. Oh, Master Farad. Yeah, the founder uh, but, but, of but, the Nation of Islam. But wasn't he white? Well, I didn't think so. I I thought he was mixed. But the but the fact is that Islam, as Malcolm X pointed out when he went through his uh, very big change, has so many. I mean, it's all embracing. There are people of every color. And the, but the the I'm talking about black Muslims now. I'm talking about Muslims on the plantation and people who were African-Americans who were Muslims in the late 19th century into the 20th century, not to any huge degree until the Nation of Islam uh, came about. But they they always were present, and I'm very interested in finding out more about it. That's what I'm saying. Um, and and hopefully finding some printed matter. That's what I'm looking for always. There's printed matter and evidence of uh, of mosques here. Of oh, mosques. Okay. Well, yeah. that's a, a good way to uh, end these, this interview. Hopefully we can come up with a date uh, when um, I can send my listeners to the Swan Gallery with your artifacts, and they can they, uh, they can start you, you if you want. I mean, you and I can work this out, um, mm-hmm. but that that can begin any time. I mean, okay. I just need to have some kind of filter where I you know I can work a schedule out because obviously we'll you know I can't do everybody boom on the same day, but I, I I'd be happy to make appointments. Okay, wonderful. Can we have your contact information? Yes. Um, you should uh, email on me. Facebook? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but you can also email directly as whday at swangalleries.com. And that swan is spelled S-W-A-N-N, and it galleries, G-A-L-L-E-R-I-E-S. So, my it's my initials and my name w h d a y at swangalleries dot com, and I hope to hear Excellent. from y'all a lot of you. All right, thank you, Mr. Wyatt Houston Day. We will be uh, talking off here. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for what you do, and uh, happy to do this anytime. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night. Okay. Bye bye.